welcome to Conversations About Life. Pancho, I've been looking forward to talking with you. Um, so I'll give you like an introduction and you can kind of fill out any of the details. And what country are you originally from? Dominican Republic or? Close. No? About 80 miles south, Jamaica. Jamaica. Okay. All right. So you're from Jamaica, and I first met you because we were wedding photographers. I remember uh, meeting you at a wedding fair, you know, mm-hmm. and we got to talking, and uh, I've kind of stayed in touch since then. And you're over here. You do graphic arts over here in Greenville, Illinois, and you do wedding photography, and you have, uh, you're married, and you have three children. One of your children, Philip, has autism, right? Correct. Um, what else, you know, just uh, introduce your, what you'd like to say to introduce yourself and kind of let people know just who, who you are, Pancho? Yeah. So, yeah, the 9 to 5 is at Intertech Global, which is where we're sitting for this interview. Um, my role here is creative lead. So, Intertech manufactures geothermal systems. So, any kind of photography, videography, um, literature, print design, as well as UX, UI for the web. I am in charge of all of that. Um, Photography and videography for weddings is something that I do on the side as kind of a second full-time job so my wife can stay home with her kids, especially Philip. Okay. Well, you've told me the story of coming here from Jamaica, but just kind of go through that again because it's an interesting story. like, what brought you here? How old were you? And how did that all work out? Sure. Yeah, so my dad, who is of uh, German-Norwegian descent, um, mm. is, a, is an American. And he was in Jamaica as a part of the Peace Corps. Hmm. Met my mom down there, and I came along as mm-hmm. a result of that relationship. They were never married. Uh, he moved back to the States. So I grew up in Jamaica. Um, I guess it was uh, an understanding between... My mom and my dad, that after high school, I would come to the States for higher education and Mm. live with him during that time. So, graduated high school, and a year after that, came to the States. I had went through high school at a fairly young age, graduation. I graduated at 15 years old. So, when I came to the States, um, I was too young to go to college at 16. <laughs> hmm. So I did another year and a half to two years of uh, high school in St. Louis um, before going off to college in Illinois. Okay. So did you know your dad very well before coming here? No, never okay. met him until oh, wow. I came to the States. Um, we didn't have a phone. So I think I had one conversation with him about a month before I came. That was... About 30 seconds. <laughs> so, complete stranger. Yeah. Okay. And then you lived with him when you got here? Yeah. For that time in high school before I left for college. Okay. Yeah. And do you still stay in touch with your dad? Yeah. He okay. lives in St. Louis about an hour from here in Greenville. So, yeah. Okay. See him as, I assume, about as often as most people see their parents. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, wow. So, um, and then what about your mom? You stay in touch with her? Yeah. So she probably has a more interesting story than mine as far as her mom. My mom and my great-grandma raised me in Jamaica, but my mom never met her mom either. Hmm. 
Mm. So uh, the story goes via my great grandma that my mom was left at her doorstep when she was about three months old and didn't know what happened mm. with uh, with my mom's mom, my grandma. So my mom is my great grandma's son's daughter. So yeah, he ended up being uh, one of the most famous artists to come out of Jamaica. And he was in New York for an art show about a year after I came to America and just happened to spot this woman that he had a child with 40 something years ago on the sidewalk in New York. And what do you know? Yeah, that was the reunion between this 16-year-old girl that left a baby on my great-grandma's doorstep to, you know, with the guy. So, uh, yeah, she ended up moving to New York to meet her, her mom, at 45 years old. Um, wow. That uh, had no idea that she had all this family. We didn't even know if she was alive. Um, so, yeah, more, a little more interesting than mine. <laughs> what was your home life like? In Jamaica or? In Jamaica, yeah. Um, very different than here. Um, I would say in our neighborhood in Jamaica, in a town called Maypen, which is right in the middle of the country, I would s- describe us as middle class to lower middle class. For American standards, would be very, very poor. Hmm. Um, we went through the schooling system like just about everybody else I knew. Um up to the high school level. There wasn't higher ed after that. But as far as day-to-day life, it was all outdoors. You know, the moment the sun came up, boom, we were out the door. Going to going to the river, even though we weren't allowed to. Um, going to play soccer, playing cricket, just exploring. It was a very outdoor-centric um, childhood. Um, once the chores were done, boom, we were gone. So I don't really remember being inside my house very much at all my entire childhood in Jamaica. Um, we were hunting birds, setting traps for uh, wild chickens, you know, catching shrimp and crawfish in the river and cooking them and eating them. Like we were just outside all the time. Hmm. But, uh, you know, economically we were very poor. I, uh, as a result of that, I had several businesses that I had as a child. <laughs> kind of been an entrepreneur since... I was about eight years old. Um, that uh, if I wanted something, I basically raised my own money to get it. Um, and really wasn't aware of my dad's financial contribution. Um, I found out later on that he was contributing all those years, but whatever he sent went to the whole family, not <laughs> just me. So, yeah. yeah. So you had siblings? Yeah. Uh, my mom... I had five other children, so I'm in the middle. I have three older sisters, um, a younger brother, and a youngest sister. Okay. Yeah. Well, in the family, did your was your mom married, or was there a, like a, a father figure or anything in Jamaica? Um, no. Um, what we what I experienced as far as family dynamic was very common for just where I lived. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the rest of the country, but I knew two of my friends' dads. Like okay. I've ever seen them kind of situation. Mm-hmm. So it was a neighborhood full of older people and single moms mm-hmm. and a lot of older people living with the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like it is in the States where the 
grandparents have their own home most of the time or in an assistant living or retirement home when they get to be really old. In Jamaica, you, you all live together until that time comes when um, that person passes away. So, so yeah, there wasn't a father figure. There was, there was just, uh, just me, my brother, and the girls. And okay. uh, yeah, my great-grandma was such a strong presence Mm-hmm. for all of us that I really never gave it a second thought that there wasn't a dad around, you know, mm-hmm. I never felt like I was missing anything or missing out on anything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sometimes I think my dad might think do I have some kind of resentment or anger or anything, but I really didn't. I really didn't think about it much at all. My entire childhood until it was time to come here. I'm like, Oh, well, I guess I want to meet this guy. Mm-hmm. There was a single photograph in the cabinet, China cabinet, in her living room that had a picture of him rowing a boat. Hmm. That was the only picture I ever saw of him. Mm-hmm. You know, um, walked past that cabinet a zillion times, but never really thought about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was the culture there, is it kind of like, you know, some, well, where were the men? Where is it um, just the nuclear family kind of was just kind of broken down it was just kind of a different type of thing in your area there is it correct um especially in my generation and the and the guys five to ten years older than me there weren't a lot of marriages it was like yeah this guy has a kid here and another kid over there and it was almost kind of like a bragging thing like yeah i got a son over there and i got this other kid over here it wasn't it wasn't like oh how come you're not married it Mm -hmm. was just a part of the culture it was you know, not to say there weren't men that were, you know, responsible in the, their responsibilities as a father or to the relationship with a woman, but it was, I would say, more common that they weren't living together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't unusual because that's the way, right? It's kind of the culturally the way it was where I lived. Right. Like I said, it was more middle to lower middle class. So was there a religious culture at home or in the your society growing up? So interestingly, Jamaica is one of the most violent places on the planet. Oh, is it? But it also has the most churches per square mile than any oh, really? country in the world. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if it still is. I know growing up, coming up through high school, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of churches, but we weren't uh, a family-going church. I think we were there on Easter um, New Year's Day or, you know, whatever those two or three days a year where you felt mm-hmm. I should be in church to start off the year properly or something like that. Right. What was your language then? Um, Patois is okay. the um, common uh, tongue. Okay. English is the official language. So everyone learns English growing up in school, just no one speaks it. Okay. So I never used English, even though I learned it all through basic school, primary school, infant school, high school. Mm-hmm. We all, it was a required course, but we just never used it. So Patois, there's different types of Patois. There's French Patois, which is spoken in like Haiti, St. Lucia, I think, where um, we had a more West African origin. Um, so Jamaica was a British colony and Jamaicans now or slaves from West Africa as part of the triangular trade between, you know, West Africa, United States, Great Britain, and uh, brought over to farm, farm the sugar plantations, banana plantations, those kind of things. So 
patois came about as a kind of a combination between the English language spoken by the British and multitudes of West African languages. Hmm. Um, so some words are completely different and others are the exact same as English. Mm -hmm. Some of it is like a slurred English. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for example, child in Patua is pygmy. No, nothing right. in common. But if I were to say, will, awagwan, that's will, what's going on. See, oh, really? Awagwan, what's mm -hmm. going on. Wagalang, what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's kind of similar. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, did you were you thinking as you were growing up, I'm going to the United States, or was it not really, a, you didn't give it much thought? And... Never gave it okay. much thought at all. In fact, it was kind of funny. When I was really, really young, I thought the United States was up in the clouds. Oh, did you? <laughs> That's where the planes went. When they went to America, they took off up in the sky. I thought, oh, it's up there somewhere. That's probably about as much as I thought about America um, as a really young child. I knew, obviously, that's where half my family was, but they didn't really cross mine much. Mm -hmm. Did you, um, did you know much about the United States or like, did you learn about it or have watched movies about, you know, that took place in the United States or anything? Well, we didn't have a TV. Okay. Um, I remember our neighbor down the street had a television and every four o'clock Tom and Jerry would come on okay. and we yeah. would, climb up on their fence and they had a little crack through their window and we would watch Tom and Jerry through the crack in their window if the window happened to be cracked that particular day. Yeah. And that was pretty much the only television exposure. Um, as far as the United States, we just kind of had the worldview that a lot of third world countries have is this place of milk and honey kind of deal. You know, everybody mm -hmm. has whatever they wanted or needed and kind of this world police and maybe a world bully yeah you know, mm -hmm. it depends on who you talk to mm -hmm. so nothing specific about life inside the country other than just those few things and what you saw in home alone movie or whatever you mm -hmm. handful of movies happened to see growing up right well how did it take place what happened when you came over or how did you come over um what was your first impressions and so forth yeah, complete culture shock. Um, my first time in a car was driving to the airport to come here. Okay. <laughs> so wow. just uh, from the very start, it was all new things. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever seen a building that was over two stories. Hmm. Um, so landing here and meeting this complete stranger that was my father, that was probably the biggest, most shocking thing. Um, but everything from the grocery store where you have you know, a dozen different types of milk, everything from whole milk to low fat to skim to chocolate milk to strawberry milk. You know, mm -hmm. in Jamaica, you just had milk. <laughs> that was mm -hmm. it. There was no choice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we didn't have grocery store with aisles and aisles of choices. You had a corner shop that you went to. You know, you didn't have a refrigerator. Um, you cooked on a wood outside so you bought what you needed for that particular meal so frequently my mom would send me to the store to go buy two pounds of chicken you know a half a pound of salt you know two pounds of flour whatever we needed and it had to be eaten because there was no way to keep it for the next day mm -hmm. to come to the united states where oh my goodness you know technologically 
seems light years ahead of <laughs> growing up in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. You know, just even something as simple as a microwave and, um, um, you know, facilities for doing laundry. You know, you didn't have to scrub it by hand and hang it in the wind. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all completely different. Just crossing a road with four lanes was a monumental task for me because, you know, I'm just used to the dirt roads. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my, shortly after I came, as I mentioned before, it was in January of 1994. It was winter, dead of winter. Didn't have a lot of clothes um, for that type of weather. He left to go to Europe for a business trip and he showed me kind of like, hey, this is how you don't burn the place down. <laughs> this is how you kind of live while I'm away and he showed me the thermostat mm-hmm. and he kept the house pretty cool on the cooler side I would say it was between 60 and 62 somewhere there hmm. so really cold in my short sleeve and shorts right. short sleeve short and shorts <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, maybe the second day after it was gone I was like um, freezing so I went over to the thermostat and I had to kind of do the calculation because in Jamaica we grew up with Celsius and in the United States it's Fahrenheit so I did the calculation I was like well in Jamaica right now it'd be about 90 degrees Fahrenheit so I'm going to turn the thermostat to 90 (laughs) so (laughs) he was not very happy when he came back and it was like a sauna walking through the front door you know it'd been that way for about a week (laughs) massive power bill yeah Yeah. so yeah you know it was uh, it was definitely a big change I don't think I'd ever seen a um, white person until I got to the airport in, right. Mi- in Miami. Oh, wow. And, you know, uh, it was kind of a funny thing seeing uh, um, Caucasian girls when I went to high school and not realizing that they shaved their armpits and legs. I just thought Caucasian girls didn't grow here and their armpits <laughs> or legs because nobody shaved their armpits and legs in Jamaica. Everybody just had hair everywhere. So, you know, just... Cultural things, personal things, it was just all a big shock and a big difference from everything I knew. Yeah. So, um, and then what did you spend your, you, you weren't going to college right away, you were working for a while first when you got here, is that right? I went into high school. Okay, you went into in, high school because you yeah, were still... I was 16. 16, right. Even though I, I already had finished high school in Jamaica, it was a completely different education, education right. system, the whole thing was different. So... I just happened to go into high school at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So coming here and not knowing anything, being completely ill-equipped to take the SAT or ACT or anything like that mm-hmm. to get admission to college, I did a year and a half of high school, took courses that would kind of basically prepare me for those entrance examinations. Mm-hmm. And um, did you enjoy school? Yeah, it was uh, a significantly easier than Jamaica once you kind of figured out kind of the system. You know, you're going to have class, you're going to cover these things, and you're going to get tested on those things. Mm-hmm. And Jamaica is a little different. You would get arthritis as a young age because of the way things work. The teacher would just be up there and just talking, and it was up to you to write down everything they said. And it wasn't at a slow pace. So you're literally just going like crazy, and you're going to be tested over you know, who knows what, uh, where here was a little more, it was a lot more deliberate covered things in bite sizes. You can absorb it, understand it, learn it, get tested on it, move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So it was very different. I thought it was a lot easier. Um, took me a long time to, um, 
grasp things because just a lot of cultural differences. For example, if you're talking about a math question and you're talking about, well, you know, if you have a pizza and you have this many slices, but if you have no concept of what a pizza is, it's a little challenging to, <laughs> to really kind of visualize that and put that into practical thought. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, it was a good experience. Yeah. And then, um, you graduated from high school and then did you go into college after that? Yeah. So, um, it's a very small school. It was 50 students total. So my class was, I think 13 or 14 of us. And one of my classmates that I played soccer with, um, on the high school team was going to go to check out Greenville College. Um, the coach had heard about him about a year ago or so and asked him to come out for a visit, a recruiting visit. He didn't want to go by himself. So I was like, Poncho, you want to come with me? You know, you, you don't have to do anything. I just want some, somebody else there with me. So I tagged along. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have any intention of going to school there. I had a full ride scholarship for soccer to a school in South um, southwestern missouri called southwest baptist university mm-hmm. went down there on a recruiting trip and they offered me a scholarship down there mm-hmm. it was five and a half hours from where my dad lived mm-hmm. which from his viewpoint was not ideal because we just met and i was going to be boom leaving mm-hmm. so i tagged along with my friend um came to greenville and they was like hey you want to come in the game come join us you know because i was just kind of sitting there watching uh they quickly realized i was you know a pretty skilled player and they started recruiting me. Uh, mm-hmm. So I ended up at Greenville, turned down the full ride scholarship to take out loans to go to Greenville because Greenville did mm-hmm. not offer athletic scholarships. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I ended up uh, at Greenville College. There was, and, and basically it was just to be closer to your dad? Yeah, that was the decision was, hey, uh, this is probably the best move for us, not, you know, relationally. Mm-hmm. You know, I can go to your soccer games. I can... You know, you can come home if you need to, if you have any issues or need to do laundry or any of those kind of things. Because mm-hmm. Greenville College was only an hour from where he lived in Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, then where did you meet your wife at? Greenville. Yeah, Greenville. she also okay. was a student at Greenville College. Okay. Um, she came in as I went out and we met <laughs> as we crossed over. There aren't a lot of international people in Greenville. Okay. Uh, so all the international people know each other she was a girl from bolivia i was the guy from jamaica so you just kind of naturally knew the very few other either minorities or or international students that were around Mm -hmm. so just met her just through that reason alone yeah um so um so um I guess that's like a, a really unique, um, you're in a really unique position compared to, you know, most USA, just that difference in culture and stuff like that. Um, are you, do you like the way you grew up? Was it a good childhood and mm-hmm. everything? Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know what it would be like to grow up here. So I can't compare. It's like, oh, it would have been better here. Um, it was just a different life. I got to do things that I would have, very unlikely I would have been able to do growing up in America. So I mentioned earlier that I had a little entrepreneurial mm-hmm. blood running through my veins there. Mm-hmm. I had uh, a little patch of 
the yard that my great-grandma allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do with. In that little patch of um, yard, I had a fish pond that I raised perch and sold mm. perch for money. Mm. Um, I had banana trees. I had plantain trees. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a little patch of sugar cane. I had tomatoes, pop chow, which is a kind of Jamaican version of spinach. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, I had some flowers there. I had quite a few things. I had some corn. Hmm. But that was just to help out the family in whatever way I could, even though I was just a little kid. I had this interesting irrigation system with bamboo shoots that I just poured water in one spot and it watered everything mm-hmm. uh, very efficiently because there wasn't a lot of water to go around. Hmm. Um, so I had that little farming project going that you know provided food for our family. Mm-hmm. But I also, like I said, sold the fish that I raised for money. I had um, several different type of birds that I raised and sold. I had pigeons that I raised and sold. I had white-winged doves. I had barbel doves. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, my pigeons would, uh, I would let them out every Saturday morning to go stretch their wings and fly around for a bit. Before I got to that point, I always fed them right after I did this particular whistle. So they would associate this whistle with hmm. food. Mm-hmm. So whenever I let them out and they flew around the neighborhood, I would do this whistle and they would fly back right down and I would feed them inside the cage. Hmm. Well, oftentimes they would come back with other pigeons, other people's pigeons. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but because I had a little farm going, I could feed my pigeons well so they never had a reason to leave. Yeah. But I would then sell those pigeons <laughs> and I didn't know where they came from. I was like, well, you're for sale. <laughs> so yeah. um, at one point in my childhood, I had a clothing um, uh, illustration uh, business where I drew, I illustrated anything they wanted in their jeans with permanent marker. It could be Hmm. Bart Simpson or Nike or whatever, any kind of uh, trademark infringement I (laughs) could do. I I was drawing these things on people's jeans and it was in style there. You know, at that particular time, I was charging 30 bucks a pair of jeans for, you know, as a... 10-year-old, 11-year-old, you know, people from all over town were coming to my house to, for me to draw mm-hmm. things on, you know, or even if they had a cheap pair of sneakers, I could illustrate very accurately the Nike symbols. I looked like they were in Nike shoes. <laughs> <laughs> they look fancier. Um, at one point, I had a barbershop where I was cutting my whole neighborhoods, most of the people in my neighborhoods here, as well as my friends yeah. and my brother. So, so yeah, it was... Uh, it was a great childhood. Um, Jamaica is a great place to grow up as a child. I don't think it's a great place to live as an adult, at least not where I lived. Very, very dangerous. Um, not enough jobs to go around. Um, a lot of people uh, act out of desperation and do things that uh, are not, not that great. Um, so I don't regret my childhood growing up there. The other thing I wonder is from the sports side of things, I was a natural athlete. You know, when I came to America and I tried these American sports, I caught on to them really, really well. And I wonder, huh, what if I had grown up here playing this thing my whole life? What would I, you know, what mm-hmm. could I have accomplished within this sport? Right. Hmm. But otherwise, no, no regrets there. Yeah. Do you still play soccer? No. Um, because of the photography that we mentioned at the beginning yeah. of this conversation, 
um, I can't really risk getting hurt um, because mm-hmm. brides aren't very understanding if you can't show up to their wedding because you twisted your ankle playing pickup soccer. Right. So about six years ago, I really realized, hey, this isn't worth the risk. I need to be able to do what I said I'm going to do for these couples and be there for them on their wedding day. So I mm-hmm. stopped playing soccer. So um, from just talking to you in the past, it, you know, I get the impression that religion has plays a part in your life at, at this time. So um, is that so? If, if, if it is, then how did that come up? about or or what role does religion play in your life and what what's that like for you yeah i would say i didn't become a christian until college even though if you ask any of my friends in jamaica they would describe me as a christian i was the one kid that didn't curse didn't Mm -hmm. smoke ganja or i guess you call it you know marijuana here Mm -hmm. uh do you call that ganja here no okay (laughs) um you know didn't do all the things that would be considered by most to be normal. I was considered extremely conservative. Um, mm-hmm. So they would probably describe me as a Christian, even though I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I never went to church, didn't do any of those kind of things. But had, in a way, in a relationship with God, even though I had very little knowledge of what he was about, or Jesus or anything, it was just kind of in my head. Mm-hmm. I would say things to God, even though I really didn't mm-hmm. have education or experience um just kind of hear things here and there my the most knowledge i had was from my great grandma she taught me to read from the bible so she okay. had me read a chapter of the bible to her as she fell asleep every night okay wow. so she was blind in one eye so mm-hmm. she couldn't read the fine print in the bible and the newspaper mm-hmm. so that's how i became a good reader was her me reading things to her her mm-hmm. kind of showing me the basics and I would just, you know, mm-hmm. the night where I read Psalms 119, I still remember it to this day because it's <laughs> such a long chapter. <laughs> it took forever to mm-hmm. read through that. But, uh, um, yeah, I kind of lost track of your question. <laughs> well, then what happened? Um, oh, in- uh, yeah. How did I become Christian? Okay, so I had that a little bit of a knowledge from just hearing people talk and didn't really absorb anything I was reading when I was reading the Bible through her each night. But, you know, whatever kind of moral compass I had was directly from her. I don't really remember a lot of conversations with my mom. I remember a lot of conversations with my great-grandma. Mm-hmm. Came to America, and my dad, very involved with the church. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, at one point, probably the only fight we've ever had, he told me I had to go to Sunday school. I was incredibly shy. I was not, uh, you know, uh, excited about that at all and sharing personal things. It was just like the worst case scenario for me hmm. was share personal information with a bunch of people that I had, was not close with, you know. Mm-hmm. Dreaded it and said, no, no way, I am not going. And we had a big fight and uh, I didn't go back to Sunday school. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until college, a good friend of mine. Uh, just through a lot of conversations and a lot of uh, kind of heart-to-heart, I, you know, gave my life to God. And that was, yeah, when it happened, even though it takes people by surprise that knew me all those years, they always assumed I was, but I, there I wasn't. I just, uh, just from the moral compass, like I said, from my great-grandma, I just kind of lived 
mm-hmm. a certain life that I guess was reflective of Christ or uh, you know a typical Christian mm-hmm. lifestyle, but it wasn't really based on anything other than just her te- you know her telling me do don't do this, do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that um, gives you confidence in the the Christian faith, or is it more of just um, kind of an inner feeling confidence that you just have that this is true? Yeah, um, I would say it's more of an internal space I reside in as far as my belief and my faith. It's not really from a particular youth group minister that really got me said that you know convinced that this is the right way to be mm-hmm. it's like i said even before i knew anything about god i kind of had conversations with mm-hmm. you know god in quotation marks if you want to put it that way um i don't i have a lot of skepticism when i visit churches in america um i always wonder about motives and motivation mm-hmm. um and I, uh, yeah, I would say I'm fed by other Christians around me and I'm fed by the church, but not reliant on those things Mm -hmm. as far as the strength and weakness of my faith. Mm -hmm. How do you practice your faith? Like, what is it, what kind of routines and stuff do you do that go along with because, you know, you're a Christian? Uh, routinely, um, that is hit or miss, depending on what's going on in my life. It shouldn't be that way. It should be priority and everything else revolves around it, but it tends to, my habits tend to evolve. So when Philip, as you uh, mentioned at the start, has autism, when he was diagnosed, there was a lot of anger there. Like, hey, we're good people. Why are we hit with this? Mm-hmm. You know? Um what did we do to deserve this? What is the reason for this? You know, the lack of understanding for uh, lack of clarity for a reason, trying to see what the benefit of this could be for us to have a child with autism. Led to a lot of anger, you know, and, uh, you know, when you face with, at least I've, I've found when you face with extreme challenges in life, you, you know, you either pull closer or pull further. You don't really linger in uh, limbo land you either stand or you sit you don't wa- you know waffle you know as far as god as far as far as your relationships with those people also directly affected mm-hmm. so the divorce rate for parents uh with a child that has special needs is over 90 percent mm-hmm. so either you're going left or you're going right it's so challenging mm-hmm. um it was the same fortunately it did not drive me <laughs> away from from God in a in a full you know full mm-hmm. manner I definitely had uh, you know some bitterness there you know like mm-hmm. but thankfully it's you know my wife and I we went through this kind of workshop for parents with of kids with uh, autism and it really gave us a good perspective of what we were faced with and how equipped us and how to handle it. It wasn't specifically a Christian uh, religious um, setup, but a lot of the principles were the same about, hey, these things happen to you in life. They're stimulus. It's up to you how you interpret and react to that. 
mm-hmm. course, our reaction is a lot of times is based on our history and things we've experienced in the past that lead us to believe a certain thing about that stimulus. You know, if I step in some gum, I could either say, oh, whoops, and scrape it off, or I could say, oh, I hate people that spit gum on the, on the thing. They, they have no consideration. They obviously disrespect me and everybody else walking on the sidewalk. You know, you could go different roads in reaction to just stepping in the gum. Mm-hmm. Gum is just a stimulus. You just can a lot of times choose how you react to that based on what you believe about that gum being on the ground. Mm-hmm. So that really equipped us um, and changed our mind from a um, victim mindset you know oh why me why you know to like hey okay what can we do what can we learn from this how can we use this to help other people um so that really helped us one stay strong in our relationship but also reconnect with god and trying to find a higher purpose um for this perceived negative you know blemish in our in our life, which is no way to th- talk about it or think about your child as a, <laughs> a blemish. But, you know, you can, uh, if, you, if you hate his autism, you're hating him. Hmm. And that's not good at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we just got to uh, um, look at the reality and make the decision to react um, not like the ninety percent, but like the ten percent. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, what's the main personal struggle that goes along with the child having autism? But you kind of explained it, and then I said, you know, what if anything rewarding has come from your child having autism? And you kind of hinted on that too. Is sure? Yeah. Closing the door. And um, and you kind of hinted on that too. Um, is it um, you know using this experience to help others? Is that kind of or or what? Uh, what if anything rewarding has come from your child having autism? Um, there have been parents across the globe that have been in contact with Emma mm-hmm. specifically because she kind of is the front. Yeah. Uh, for any kind of connection with others, um, that as she's been able to help, either just kind of talk off a ledge to like, hey, here are some resources. Here's what we found helpful, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's really a a global impact. Hmm. You know, she'll be on the phone at the craziest times because she's talking to somebody in Australia because of the time difference, you know, or somewhere in South Korea or mm-hmm. one that. So we've been able to help a lot of people. We had a relationship with Greenville College where sociology and psychology students would come over and get practicum credits for working with Philip. There are not a lot of opportunities in Greenville for that kind of experience. Uh, we know with a child with autism that allows the that kind of interaction. A lot of those kids had no plans to do anything with autism or anything like that, but through the experience with us and being trained with the methods um, that we equip them with and, you know, to work with Philip and to interact with Philip, they've completely changed their direction of their career. Um, hmm. Several of them and have just been, have had really fulfilling careers so far, you know, in that field. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest things that's rewarding is seeing parents have 
a different view of their child. So, you know, you have a lot of people that they think of the high-functioning Asperger's kid, you know, super smart, but not socially capable, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as a normal, typical interactions of a neurotypical, you know, young person. And then you have some that because their child is nonverbal, they think there's not a lot going on there. They talk to them as if they're a child. They're still trying to teach them colors because the kid can't verbalize that, hey, I know all this stuff. I'm normal on the inside. I just can't communicate with my mouth mm-hmm. um, or have the dexterity or the body control to really do what my brain is thinking. Getting people to realize that, hey, there's an intelligent person in there. Just because he can't speak doesn't mean he doesn't know things and can understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have just been in tears when they come to the realization that their child is uh, so much more than what they thought, hmm. you know, so much more beyond the autistic uh, severe autism label or, you know, whatever their diagnosis is. So we came across a method of communicating, you know, it's called rapid prompting method, where even though a lot of kids can communicate verbally, they can, with a stencil, a letter stencil can spell out things what they're thinking hmm. and that's just been just super eye opening for a lot of parents you know um, mm-hmm. who previously thought their kid was on a two-year-old level cognitively hmm. yeah so do you guys have support sounds like you're giving support help to other people what about your own family um does the community support you and just the extra um you know, work that you all have to do in, um, you know, caring for Philip plus reaching out to others and so forth? Yeah, so yes, we that would be accurate. We are a support um, for a lot of people, but we don't have a lot of support for, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, family, we're from different countries, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, Emma's family is in England and her parents are missionaries in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. They are a tremendous help when they're in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, fantastic. Or even just to, just to talk to. Mm-hmm. It's really supportive. Would do any, would drop everything they're doing and come here if we needed them for something. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been incredibly helpful in that way. As far as the community goes, yeah, we saw a monumental shift in our friendships when we got diagnosis of severe autism for Philip, hmm. we uh, we saw probably about eighty percent of the people that we were friends with were no longer uh, to be found. It's almost mm-hmm. like they thought it was uh, contagious; it hmm. disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result of that, that void has been filled with other people who are friends with us, despite the challenges mm-hmm. socially with uh, you know with a autistic child you know there's not everything um not everything is possible for him to to do something is overstimulating some things are overstimulating some things uh are really challenging for him to just be in that space with uh a lot of activity you know children are pretty unpredictable as far as their action goes and that unpredictability can be challenging <laughs> yeah you know for someone like him mm-hmm. so yeah we do have friendships and they're definitely genuine friendships there are friendships that have come about since philip has been here and about 10 to 15 
uh, maybe 20% that were in existence before the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But I would say most of those friendships that really weren't good, true friendships went out the window. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as support regarding autism, there's not a lot there. We're essentially the experts of all the people that we know. They're people getting information from us. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, uh, you know, socially we do have some people that that uh, fill that uh, that cup. Mm -hmm. What do people, what's something that you really appreciate that, um, you know, if, they, if someone was wanting to just give you guys support in the your situation, um, what what would they do or or what's helpful in that way? Uh, we found the best um, and most heartwarming thing is when people treat Philip like a typical um, young man. Yeah. Um, when they interact with him. So because he can talk, but he can't speak functionally as far as like, hey, Will, how's it going? Hey, what do you have in your pocket there? Mm -hmm. He's more, he can communicate what he needs, but it's at a very basic level, even though he has the ability to verbalize anything. He can't put it together in his brain and have it come out effectively. Mm -hmm. So people, a lot of people think, oh, he's not capable cognitively, but there are some people that really just speak to him like, hey, Philip, how's it going? And he really, really perks up from that you know like when they people treat him as a typical person because he's incredibly bright but you just would never know it mm -hmm. by uh just listening to him um verbally stem right you know what that means verbally stemming it's uh, just re repetitive speech okay know? yeah um well um you know, I've known you somewhat in the the wedding photography world, and um, it seems like you're a rela relationship person. You reach out to other people, and you try to give help and so forth. Um, what What are your thoughts about relationships? Um, do you feel yourself good at making and maintaining and enjoying relationships? Um, or are there are certain things about relationships you, you would like to do better, or um, you know, if, what positive things have come about through relationships, or what do you want to come about through them? And you know, I'm just thinking of different f other wedding photographer friends you've you've had, and uh, and just the um, you know way you've reached out to to me with help and stuff like that before. So, anyway, just what thoughts do you have about relationships? Um, are you, do you feel, um, you know, like you're a pretty good relational person or, or how is that for you? I would say it's a big struggle. Um, so I've had this, it's not a new or interesting or unique, um, mindset, but I try to do my best to make all of my weaknesses strengths and strengths permanently. So one of my biggest um, weaknesses, if you want to put that label on it growing up, is or was relationships. Incredibly introverted growing up, incredibly shy. Um, in fact, I had a girl in high school in America told me 
at the end of graduation. Pancho, you are the worst company. (laughs) This girl had a crush on me and I knew she had a crush on me, but I was just absolutely terrified to even engage in that level. So I just never spoke. I just sat there and nodded and smiled. And she just finally told me, you are the worst company. It's out of frustration, you know, with me. I took that to heart and really remember that when I went to college. And when I went to college, I uh, played soccer right away. I started as a freshman. had a very successful start. I think I had like seven or eight goals in the first five games. And people were coming up and talking to me constantly. And, you know, hey, Poncho, you know, and people, I had no idea who they were. And I remembered that statement, Poncho, you are the worst company. <laughs> and I really, you know, worked on that. I really try to talk to people, even though it's like, you know, pretty exhausting for me. Hmm. So if my wife and I go to a wedding or go to a party, she's in the opposite realm socially, you know, she's an extrovert. We could talk to, we could both talk to 20 people and she would be just energized in the car on the way back home. Like, oh, I talked to this person. And then, you know, she's just, hmm. she gets yeah. energy from that where I am completely emotionally drained. Mm-hmm. It took everything out of me to make it through the evening, <laughs> you know, and have those conversations. Mm-hmm. So it's not a natural thing for me. Um, you know, when I met you, I probably knew two other photographers, period. Hmm. You know, okay. I have almost no exposure to other people in their work, mm-hmm. you know, and the two people I knew were people that I taught photography. So I really didn't have anybody I was learning from, mm-hmm. you know. So those relationships have been pretty non-existent. Um, I tend to have a few really close friends like most introverts do. Mm-hmm. And then... A lot of people who know me, but I don't really know them on any kind of meaningful level. Right. So I've really worked on that. Um, Most people whose wedding a photograph would not describe me as an introvert or, Mm -hmm. you know, a quiet, shy person in a social situation, but I really am. I just know how to do what I need to do to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is where I need to be for this type of wedding. Okay. I can be that. This is who I need to be for this type of wedding. I can be this other thing. Whatever works to give them a good experience on their wedding day, I can be that for them. Mm-hmm. None of those things are ever the real me, which is the person not saying anything at all <laughs> and just listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as far as relationship goes, this has been a struggle, you know, to, uh, to contribute, not just sit there and be a sponge and listen to everybody else talk, but also to... Um, feed into people's life you know in a meaningful way and be a benefit to others not just be the one receiving because i'm just quiet mm-hmm. so uh so yeah i find a uh, high value in that you know um i have a really really good friend that um you know you can only ask this question from a really really good friend but the question is hey what do you know about me that I don't know about myself that I should know about myself? Hmm. You know, you can only ask that to like a really good friend, right? Yeah. And it's a very uh, revealing thing. And it's a, you know, sometimes we're not self-aware. We're not aware of mm-hmm. things we do or things we say or, or expressions, how that's read by other people and different types of people. So it's always that's gold, you know, right. as far as information and a social dynamic. So it's interesting that you 
intentionally try to take weaknesses and make them strengths. And that's what you try to do with your introvert tendencies to, you know, be more an extrovert when you need to be. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you, um, are there any other things that were weaknesses that you've intentionally tried to make a strength? Yes. Um, because of the language issue when I first came here, I knew English, but never spoke it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be a very good listener because while the person is speaking, I would be thinking about what I'm going to say next because yeah. I'm s- such anxiety about mm-hmm. speaking and speaking well and clearly that I was a terrible listener. And I really worked on that, um, really taking time to absorb what's being said. And not the best at it still, but it's something I'm working on. So another thing that's really a struggle is names. Retaining names of people. Mm-hmm. I could have a conversation and 30 seconds later, I'm like, oh, what was this person's name? I can't, I can't think of it. Mm-hmm. Hope nobody comes up that I have to introduce them because I can't think of what their name is. So when it comes to a wedding, I know that's a weakness, but I know that business-wise... Um, it's much better to address someone by their name mm-hmm. than just "Hey, uh, bridesmaid in the blonde with the blonde hair," or yeah. "Hey, the the guy with the 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 goatee." You know, can you move over a little bit? It, you know, I know that the chances of them thinking of me when they're getting married, or them thinking of me when somebody else they know is getting married, mm-hmm. it's significantly improved if. I simply refer to them by their name. Right. My biggest weakness. <laughs> so, yeah. so over the years, I've asked the bride and groom for a list of the entire wedding party, and I memorize it. Mm-hmm. I memorize these people. Um, and as soon as I see them, I attach them to the name because I have this thing, I, this exercise I do. You know, if the person's Maddie, Madeline, I immediately look at them and try to think of something about them that connects them to Madeline and then that helps me throughout the day. So they all think I have this amazing gift with names, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, Pontiac, you know, you're so, you, I feel like you know all of us. We, you know all of our names, you know, like, and it's an example of I've taken a weakness and making it a strength. Now, am I better at remembering names? No, but I've overcome that weakness and make it to do a perceived strength, even if it might not, mm-hmm. even if my brain still that has trouble remembering names, at least for that day. Right. I am acing that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I used to try to, when a, like a bridesmaid was being introduced, I would try to think of somebody else with the same name, and I would think, oh, she has the same name as so-and-so. And then when I saw her, I would think of that other person, and then that would help sometimes. <laughs> right. Not um, for the day, then by the next, you know, after that day, you know, it would be lost So that would be a challenge for me because I have to remember two people's names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but yeah, same thing for me. I could see them in Walmart the next day, and yeah, I can't remember the name. Yeah. Um. So you're a pretty ambitious person. Is that just like a a natural type of thing, or is there something behind that? You know, I don't know where that came from. Um, My great grandma. You know, she was a nurse, nurse's aide maybe. I'm not, I wasn't, mm-hmm. I don't quite have a full grasp on what she did. Um, but I know it was something medically related. Um, she was a self-educated 
<laughs> woman, which, you know, in Jamaica, you don't have to have these strict qualifications to do certain things. You know, you have the skill, you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, when she got pretty old, I mean, and most of my memories from her was her in her 80s. Um, mm. She still had things she did to pull her weight, mm-hmm. you know. I remember she basically built that house one room at a time, hmm. most of the work herself, mm-hmm. you know. She might bring in someone here to help with the heavy stuff or whatnot, but it ended up being a 13-room house that she started off with, just a room in a kitchen, you know, whatnot. Um, but even in her 80s, she was still selling coal, so people didn't have, in our neighborhood, didn't have gas stoves or, like I said, microwaves or... Mm-hmm propane or any of these uh, um, conveniences, people cooked with coal, which is basically different. It's different from coal here. It's just burnt wood, but then soaked before it becomes ashes. So you can, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's dried out, kind of pre-burnt wood. Mm -hmm. She would buy a hundred pound bags of these and I would be the one to buy it from the vendors driving around the neighborhood with their mule-drawn carriages with these 100-pound bags. I'd have this wheelbarrow. I'd go get it. Mm-hmm. I'd bring it back to her. And with, with the two of us, we would divide it up into little tiny oil cans and people would buy a quarter can, a quarter tin, we call them tins, a mm-hmm. quarter tin of coal, a half tin of coal, or a full tin of coal. And we'd work our way through the 100-pound bags of coal, selling them, you know, $3 for a quarter tin, $5 for a half tin, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was a hard worker, even into her late 80s, early 90s, um, always working, you know, doing stuff in the yard, trying to improve things. Um, If I could point to one thing, I would say maybe that was it. Um, She just had just a fantastic work ethic. Mm -hmm. Retirement wasn't a thing. Right. You know. Um, So maybe maybe that was it. I don't know if that's... uh, something I thought about until you just asked me that question, but that's maybe that's the one thing I could uh, point to. Right. And you had respect for her. Right? Yes. Tremendous yeah. respect. Yeah. Um, you're also a, ge- a generous person. I remember um, you were paying your assistant photographers, you know, more than me <laughs> and, and just in other ways, um, you know, I've been impressed with your generosity and with your time too, and so forth, is um, and you're somebody who's kind of strapped for time. I know you have a lot of responsibilities. Um, you have any thoughts about what's behind that, or um, you know what motivates you in that way? I think that's probably goes back to the culture of Jamaica. Um, it's very different than America. I know. I feel like. American culture is if I do something for you, that's with the understanding that I might want the return of the favor down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you owe me, so to speak. If I buy lunch for you today, when we go back to lunch, I'm expecting you to pay for it the next time. That wasn't something I experienced growing up. It was you gave because you had it to give and the person didn't have it that you're giving mm-hmm. it to. Um, if you had an orange and you're with a friend, it was an expectation that you're going to break that orange in half. And we're going to each have a half an orange. Where here, it's like, oh, well, go get your own orange. Because you mm-hmm. can. You have the means to. Mm-hmm. It's much more individualistic as far as 
generosity. Hmm. So here, you know, you have generosity that's more geared towards like, hey, it's uh, the religious thing to do, you know, give 10% or more, or, mm-hmm. or there's a tax write-off or, you know, it's just, uh, it's a little different than given because the other person doesn't have it and you really don't have it either, but you're in it together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a, that's a cultural difference there. Uh, I don't think I'm really that generous overall compared to a lot of people. Um, I mean, I paid my, assistant shooters generously because I value what they do mm-hmm. and I want them to continue contributing to my, to the people that have trusted me with their wedding day. I, I value the consistency. I don't want to pay someone so low that they feel the need to do something, go shoot with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want them to take it seriously. Hey, I'm paying you this much because I value what you bring in this much, so bring this much every time. Right. So if I can deliver a consistent product, like McDonald's delivers French fries, no matter where you are in the world, those French fries taste the exact same, then people have confidence that I'm going to deliver for their wedding like I did for their friend or their little sister or their older sister, mm-hmm. um, whoever referred them, because I'm, my business model is based on personal referrers, not advertising um, in the traditional sense. Right. So if I can deliver consistency... Um, that's great. And one way to do that is to have the same crew present for most weddings that don't have an understanding about, hey, this is how we treat people. This is how we treat our clients. They're going to treat them like I treat them. And we're going to deliver a consistent level of work. So I would love to say, yes, it's because of the goodness of my heart. But no, it's a, <laughs> it's a business strategy as far as the uh, assistant photographers go. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you a reader? Do you like to read books and stuff? Or do you take in media and other in some other way do you listen to things or I I've had reading more on my to-do list <laughs> for <laughs> over a decade I mean yeah I love learning about things I'm interested in mm-hmm. um I was just uh doing a lot of reading today about the Tuskegee Institute and the Tuskegee Airmen from World War II because hmm. you know they were in times of a lot of racial tensions a lot of stru- you know social tensions with people, different ideals, uh, different um, political ideas and support. And the Washington Redskins have been getting pressure for quite a few years to change their mascot, change their logo. It's uh, not a flattering thing, you know, to uh, for Native Americans, you know, for them to have their mascot be the Redskins. Mm, right. You know. Um. And I've read that one of the names they're considering is Red Tails. And Red Tails was the nickname given to the all-black squadron that had a lot of success in World War II. You know, in World War II times, segregation was 100%. Hmm. But Roosevelt's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, was uh, more progressive in that way and knew black people and, and, you know, treated them as equals. And through their influence and their position, you know, they really changed things as far as the military, as far as uh, blacks in this country. But anyway, hearing a little bit about that nickname and figuring out what the, what, was red, what does red tails mean and figuring out, that, oh, it was, a, you know, a military, all black military section of the Air Force. Mm-hmm. I got to reading about them and 
wasted half the day <laughs> reading about him. So I like to do that kind of reading. I wish I had more time to read, but unfortunately, I just have to make decisions based on what's needed, what's going to be the most beneficial for my family. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a lot of downtime to read for my own gratification, you know, beyond mm-hmm. beyond uh, the thing here and there for a half day that I come across like the Red Tails. Right. Um, what do you do? Is there any kind of thing that you just enjoy doing for relaxing? Um, I really don't have things I do for relaxing. It's a horrible yeah. thing and I'm sure I'm going to pay the price for it in the near future or the distant future. I really don't uh, have that thing. It used to be soccer, but mm-hmm. I stopped doing that. Yeah. I really, anytime I have downtime where the kids are in bed and it's just my wife and I and we might spend an hour each night either talking about something or watching a a show and eating some ice cream or whatnot. That's basically my relaxation time. Yeah. You'd asked me earlier about what kind of things I do to, you know, exhibit or feed my Christian faith. And, you know, I said it was kind of inconsistent. And, you know, right now I get up at 5 a.m. and I'm heavier than I want to be. I don't look like it, but I'm over 205 pounds, which I know is shocking to people. But, you know, I've tried to use that time to do some exercise in the morning, but listen to the at least five chapters of the Bible each morning. Use that time for prayer after the exercise. Um, and then do some learning as well as um, before I go to my nine-to-five job. So... It's not exactly relaxation time, but it's relaxing for me. Mm-hmm. It's I'm still working. I'm still, you know, communicating. I'm thinking, you know, if I'm praying, it's not work, but it's not relaxing either. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's mentally engaging stuff. It's not just relaxing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you have pretty high standards, um, like for yourself, you know, getting up early and the, the, the weight, the exercising, the chapters of the Bible and, and all of that, um, that probably doesn't come from like the typical American, um, like where does, um, you know, that come from, or is it, um, just kind of um, for you, like what makes for a meaningful life, or um, or anyway, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I probably work as hard as I do because of a fear of failure. Okay, that I'm sure that's a motivating <laughs> factor for a lot of people, but I don't know how much longer. I can shoot weddings either because styles change and I can't adapt or I develop arthritis in my shoulder and I can't hold that camera up for 12 hours of a day. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never been in a job that I'm like, oh yeah, this is guaranteed. I'm going to retire from this job. You know, there is a 100% security here 
things change, you know. Um, primarily, I was a graphic designer when I started, so just creating print stuff. Well, print is phasing out. You know, you can see the one of the newspapers closing. People are doing more online versus hard copy stuff. So you have to evolve. It's mm-hmm. I try to keep my ear to the ground regarding those things and always have a pivot um, opportunity that I provide for myself if I see things turning a different um, unappealing way with whatever I'm doing at that point. So I've always had multiple jobs, but it's a fear of not having a job. (laughs) It's really the motivating thing. Not being able to provide for my family is not something that uh, I would uh, enjoy. Um, You know, even just as a kid, having that little patch of land in the yard that I had the bananas and the plantains and the coconuts and sugarcane and stuff, you know, I was contributing in my own little way, even though I was like eight, nine years old, you know. Um, I think, you know, it's... It's a, I, I would say it's pretty much fear. It's a fear-driven mm-hmm. work ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not naturally gifted with anything. I think I work hard at the things I do, you know, um, to try and get better at them. You know, wasn't super book smart in school. I was just an average student. But, you know, I knew what I had to do to succeed mm-hmm. even if it's at a mediocre level <laughs> still success <laughs> but you know photography and all those things you know I just self-taught just working hard you know trying to knowing that there are some people that this comes more naturally to if they work this hard I have to work this hard to at least be even with them mm-hmm. you know I think that's that's good motivation mm-hmm. is there any particular way you would like to um grow and you know and your just personal being of who you are like in um, five years or ten years you would like um, to be more like this and just your character or person or any your experiences or anything like that right um good question i i intentionally have older friends than my age group hmm. I try to go through life to learn from the things that have um, affected people in good ways or bad that I've experienced them before I do. Mm-hmm. One, so I don't make the same mistakes, but two, I know the good, the good choices to make. Hmm. I was uh, never a rebellious kid. I was like, oh, you told me to do it, I'm going to do something else because you know, I made my own decisions. I was never that. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, please give me advice. I, was, I might not use it because it might not be right for me, but I want to know it, you know? Um, so some of those older people have said like, oh, they're in their 60s. Oh, these are the best years of my life. I'm so much more confident in who I am as a person. I, you know, I'm, you know, all those things. I look forward to that. The anxiety socially and the shyness is not being uh, fully comfortable and confident in who I am as a person. You know, I would, I look forward to that point maybe it's five years on the road maybe it's 10 years maybe it's when i'm 80 i'm like finally i'm comfortable in my own skin (laughs) i don't know when that's gonna happen but but yeah that would be a nice thing to attain Mm -hmm. just complete confidence in my own skin to just talk to someone without thinking about what they're thinking about me (laughs) 
<laughs> that would be nice. I'm jealous of those people that can just operate in that space. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I can relate to that. I've been trying to grow relationally and um, been doing different things um, that kind of stretch me in that way. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping, you know, with time, there are some small groups that I meet with. Um, there's a group, uh, well, it was, there was four of us. Now there's just three of us. And we meet every Saturday morning at a neighbor's house. And, and um, we've been together for a year and a half. We're going through this book that's supposed to take two years. Uh, it might take us longer. And, um, uh, but it's been a year and a half. And just like, just now, I'm getting to really enjoy these guys and just being really comfortable with them, you know, so. Right, right. It takes a while, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Pancho. I really appreciate just the time to be able to talk with you and, and uh, just ask all these questions. So yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot. Absolutely, yeah. You've asked some things I had never thought about <laughs> myself or life in general. So it's, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. If you use a podcast app like iTunes, please give a review of Conversations About Life.